Welcome to a very wintry Tuesday home time with Jen Bartlett. But first I wish to thank once again all the wonderful people who donated to this program over the past month or so for the Radiothon. Without you and those who donated to all other programs in 3CR, we wouldn't have a 3CR. So thank you. Well done. Today, a significant breakthrough in seeking justice for Tharnika Urugapam and exposing just one side of the cruel treatment of asylum seekers and refugees. I'll be speaking with Max Costello. Councillor Sue Bolton, supporting Palestine at Warren City Council meeting. The second part of the interview on the recent history of Colombia with Sasha Gillis-Lakakis. A report from the meeting in New York, which wrapped up the tour by Julian Assange's family in his support of him. A continuing serious situation in Malaysia for the COVID crisis. He's speaking once again to Lee Tan. And a whistleblower in the US is awaiting sentencing for exposing the real impact of killer drones. Kathy Kelly with that one. But first, Mr. Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when big supremo scuttled in more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, promised everyone would have at least one jab by Christmas, which is an improvement on his last promise about Easter, when we simple souls thought he meant last Easter, unless, of course, we've made the same mistake and he means the Christmas after next, which, when we think about it, the way things are going, he, he may mean. It must be for selfish, anti-caring business class. Yes, hard as it is to believe, there are people who are anti-caring business class. Anti-caring business class political purposes that some people, well, 99% of some people, still think the vaccination rollout is a shambles. (laughs) Rubbish. It makes a shambles look like perfection. As a silly thought, Remember how we used to own the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories before far-sighted government handed CSL over to the efficiency of the private sector? Well, my silly thought is, if we still owned it and the profit motive therefore wasn't involved, could we just perhaps be far more advanced in the vaccination stakes than we are? Told you it was a silly thought. Thankfully, Lord Rupert of Wapping has stepped into the breach with a call to arms. An entire Lord Rupert of Wapping sin P1 telling us this is a war against a deadly enemy, launching a campaign to get our country back on the road to freedom. See, it's the freedom bit that worries Lord Rupert, the freedom of capital, which is what the freedom bit of liberty, freedom and democracy means. Hang the freedom of those whose labour provides the freedom of capital. Collateral damage, as they say, for this is war. Why else put the vaccination program in the hands of a trained killer who talks of his campaign in purely trained killer terms? A trained killer talking about health. But then they're not trained to kill us, they're trained to kill the other, wedding parties and all that. Unless, of course, we get out of control when they may have to convince us of the benefits of the greatest little economic order of them all. By the way, I hope you don't think I'm suggesting the liberty bit of liberty, freedom and isn't also about the liberty of capital to go about its business, the liberty of Hayek et al. Indeed, if an organisation has liberty in its title or agenda, be careful. 
be very, very careful. And as for democracy, well, our governments are living proof of its efficacy. Scuttle them, we are scuttle them, living proof of democracy. You said you were very, very close friends, close friend Gladys Berich lock them in, set a gold standard for not having a lockdown. What do you say now? Right now I say my very, very close friend Gladys has set the gold standard for a lockdown. You mean endless. I mean the irresponsible socialist government in Victoria, the pejorative Dan, is destroying their economy rather than learning to live with COVID, with the Delta strain. Uh, live and die. The number of deaths is minimal compared to the death blows to the economy. And yet the pejorative Dan government persists with this nonsense that Scummo and the team are treating them differently. They have to learn from Scummo and Josh and Co and keep politics out of all this. As an aside, the Radio National Brecky person for a couple of days franked the Americanization of our language by calling the train killer saviour Lieutenant Colonel until someone obviously told her the English pronunciation is Lieutenant. Then again, given our servile obsequiousness, it's probably better that we do speak Americanese. Why would the mention of the U.S., of the U.N., of the U.S. of the world, or, or train killers for that matter, remind me of bullying? No idea, but good news is that bullying works, as the Trublawazi Competition and Consumer Commission plans to probe market abuses by Facebook, Google and co, leading a number of very nervous, caring business class heroes to remind us how the tech behemoths reacted to a move to make them pay for news they pinched from other news sources by closing everything down. Facebook versus Lord Rupert a whopping. Which, which one do you barrack for? Anyway, these heroic companies that have buckled at the knees are advising the con mission to lay off, leave the tech giants to continue ripping off big time, or we might upset them again. So good news, bullying works. Or sometimes the mere fear of bullying works particularly with such fearless defenders of lazy, avaricious workers and the poorest of the poor as the Socialist Party, which has been contemplating whether or not to support tax cuts for the filthiest rich of the filthy rich. And this week, the Troubler Aussie Capitalist Review reported they, the Socialists, had decided to support tax cuts for the filthiest rich of the filthy rich because... Oh, what ideological principle, listener, because if they opposed them, the government would use that against them. Courage under fire, as our train killer vaccination bloke would tell us. We have to admire their principle, don't we, and their unswerving commitment to the victims of the filthiest rich of. Uh, by the way, they say they haven't yet made a final decision, but as a betting man, I'd like to be getting odds on which way they'll go. Go. Go west, young man. Unless you're into renewable energy. Mentioned last week how Fossils Minister Keith Pitpony rejected a Northern Development Fund loan for renewable energy, assuring us wind and solar are now mature enough not to need government assistance, while he approved a trillion dollar handout for a new coal mine. Obviously coal not yet mature enough to stand on its own, and we know the Pilbara out in western Troublewazi and 
Western True Blue Aussie generally, it's crammed with the great transnational resource giants doing their bit for the economy by ripping it up, extracting its goodies, blowing up terra nullius sacred sites, caves which get in the way. So in the distinguished footsteps of Keith Pitponi, the capitalist environment minister Susan Lees and Dregs has KO'd a $53 billion renewable energy hub in the Pilbara on environmental grounds. The Clean Energy Council displayed its anti-environmental bias by attacking her when she just wants to protect the environment. Claiming inconsistency, the council claiming that, of course, come on, including inconsistency with the treatment of non-renewable projects, and yet there are still ignorant people who question the government's commitment to taking climate change, if there is such a thing, seriously. And here's Susan working her guts out for us after protecting the environment from renewable energy, taking off for Europe to convince environmental authorities, the, the World Heritage Council, not to declare the Great Barrier Reef endangered, which most of it isn't, because it's not there anymore. Definitely still there, the thankless task of the caring business class to assist and advise in great lazy avaricious workers how they can improve their lives, escape from the pandemic of slow wages growth, which has the caring business class so distressed, continued this week by one of the most qualified advisors to working people, Jenny Lambase Labor who moved from assisting workers through her role at the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, so reliable and respected an authority that great journals like the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin quote its wisdom regularly, to her new important role as supremo of the True Blue Aussie Chamber of Profits. Responding to a biased article by ACTU Secretary Sally McManus that wages were stagnant, that wage rises were good for the economy, exposed by Jenny as pure nonsense. We have experienced real wages growth over the past decade and have one of the highest average wages in the world. So you can imagine my surprise when I found Sally McManus claiming otherwise, Jenny wrote. Yes, Jenny, we can but imagine. Why, she boasted, our wages have grown in real terms in the past decade by 0.5% every year. 0.5% every year. And still lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions complain about wage growth. But showing her an aid care for working people, Jenny advised them how to get even higher wages, address slow wages growth, which is their own fault anyway. Work harder. Productivity. Workers are not productive enough. The caring business class proffers this solution by the day, leaving us to ask, when will workers and unions see the light, get off their bums and lift their game? Unions must partner with caring employers to ensure workers work harder, Jenny advised. Shades of nuclear hawk. While it was important governments play their role by reducing crippling taxes which crucify hard-working, caring employers. Higher wages require improved productivity, not union hypocrisy, she wrote. Don't we have to admire the way the caring business class fights relentlessly to improve the lot of the ingrates? Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. Let's hope they listen. Well, Jenny, like both the Institute of Public very...
private affairs and the Chamber of Prophets, knows and practices the real meaning of liberty, freedom and democracy. We've commented before on our admiration for the intellectual power of the Minister for Stuffing Up Aged Care, Richard Colback Prophets, but it's worth noting that Richard is so competent he doubles as Minister for Sports Rorts, and as such he assured us this week it was really important he attend the Olympics. Although we might have thought that in terms of Trubler was his international reputation, it's more important that he doesn't attend the Olympics. A couple of signs balancing the twin portfolios just may be beyond poor Richard. Well, any portfolio seems to be beyond poor Richard, exemplified by his approval for a state-of-the-art footy oval and club and change rooms for a suburban aged care home for the dying and a hundred colostomy bags and 150 wheelchairs for the Troublawazi gymnastics team. Unless, of course, he believes the gymnasts are in for a massive spate of injuries and the nonagenarians are in for a miraculous recovery. Something, finally, Scummo and Gladys are also hoping for, but no miracle required for lazy avaricious workers whooping it up on their 0.5% wage rise. Just show a bit of concern for your caring employer and work harder. Lift your productivity and nirvana awaits. Good afternoon. And don't forget Kevin and the crew. Sea Limits, Tuesday morning at 9am. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Ban School to learn more and be part of history in the making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash bandschool. That's icanw.org.au forward slash bandschool. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. Tune to 3CR Community Radio. We all remember the first photograph of three-year-old Thanika Murugapuram on her arrival at Perth Hospital, seriously ill with septus and pneumonia, after being airlifted from the detention centre on Christmas Island, ten days after becoming ill. Not the first time a refugee in offshore detention's health and even life has been seriously at risk and denied proper medical care. But at least this time there is confirmation that an urgent investigation is underway about Thundika's medical care between May and June on the island as Comcare's Regulatory Operations Group has initiated an open inspection to matters raised by Max Costello, former prosecuting solicitor with WorkSafe Victoria and now retired. Max, I know the issue of the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers has been one you've followed closely and actively for a long time, 
But this one concern, the then three-year-old Danica, has to be viewed as a breakthrough. Well, this one, uh, as reported in great detail by Rebecca Holt in the Saturday paper of the 12th of June, this one was a case that was so serious. In a nutshell, uh, little Danica Murugapan of the Biloela Tamil family uh, the whole family is on Christmas Island uh, since late 2019, August 2019. She was left to get sicker and sicker and sicker until after you know, nearly uh, two weeks, she was flown with her mother Priya as emergency medical airlift to Perth and was taken straight to the children's hospital in Perth. So my thinking was when you have... Uh, a detainee because they were in an immigration detention facility, a so-called alternative place of detention, a small cabin on Christmas Island. When you let a three-year-old girl get so sick, first with pneumonia apparently, and then towards the end, sepsis, blood poisoning, which is which can be fatal, leaving a three-year-old to get that sick in an immigration detention facility with such a shockingly serious apparent criminal offence under the Work Health and Safety Act that I wrote to Comcare and said this surely requires an investigation with a view to prosecution. So I wrote that letter on the 30th of June relying as I say on Rebecca's detailed account and requested a prosecution and I uh, that, so that's it, it's the seriousness that prompted me to to write I got a reply on the Tuesday of this week, so that's Tuesday the 13th of July. Uh, late in the afternoon, I got an email uh, which attached a letter from Comcare as Senior um, Enforcement Officer, I can't remember the exact title, but um, confirming that, to use the strange words, it said an investigation into the medical care of Farnica late May, early June, is, quote, an open inspection, uh, unquote. Now, I think that really means that there is an investigation is underway. In my understanding is that um, Comcare inspectors are conducting an investigation into what I say is the alleged extreme medical neglect of um, little Farnica. She turned four soon after arrival in Perth. I think she's now a four-year-old. That means that the investigators go to Christmas Island? Is that the issue? I don't. Since the family is, for the time being, in Perth, uh, though they're being given uh, what's called a, a community detention house in Perth to live in the whole family, and... Um, Sarnica is receiving now outpatient care from the uh, Children's Hospital. It's interesting that the house is, although it's very close to the airport, is 18 kilometres away from the hospital. It's a bit puzzling. But uh, the whole family, but it's only a three-month. Minister Hawke in mid-June uh, announced that they were getting a short-term visa, which would last for three months, Mother Priya and Father Nadu's would have work rights but of course if you're only there for three months and you don't know anyone and so on it's a bit artificial but 
but they have uh, their in-community detention, if you like. That's the situation at the moment. So I don't think there's any point in going to Christmas Island unless the uh, Comcare people want to talk in person to one of the... There was an IHMS doctor. IHMS is the uh, International Health and Medical Service of Proprietary Limited. That's, that's the company contracted by the Commonwealth Government to provide medical services and health care services to all sorts of immigration detention facilities. So that if they want to talk in person to an IHMS doctor on Christmas Island, they might go there, but uh, whether they do it remotely, uh, I don't know. But, um, but of course, the family's not there. So, I don't look, I don't know exactly how Comcare will carry out its investigation. The, the usual course is that investigators like Comcare federally, I used to... Um, be an inspe- a solicitor with WorkSafe in Victoria and the inspectors usually get documents first and then do interviews later but look, uh, that's up to Comcare I don't know exactly how they'll go about their investigation How is this investigation different to the one about the refugee who committed suicide at Villawood? Well, it's very similar, the um, Yes, on the 3rd of March this year, uh, the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, relying on a brief of evidence, in other words, an investigation by Comcare, laid two charges, uh, one uh, each against Home Affairs, which is in effect, uh, which operates the, all the detention facilities. Actually, it's the Australian Border Force Unit within Home Affairs that is uh, directly in charge of... Uh, detention facilities, uh, two charges against Home Affairs, two against international IHMS uh, in relation to a Villawood detainee, Villawood's in Sydney, a Villawood Detention Centre detainee who committed suicide in 2019. I think the suicide prompted, uh, I'm guessing, the probably Comcare to investigate. Investigation took a while and it wasn't until almost two years later that the charges were laid. But it's very similar. Here's a case of very serious alleged health neglect of a detainee and all that Villawood, the Christmas Island um, little cabin, they're all detention facilities of one sort or another and therefore they're Commonwealth, immigration is a Commonwealth matter, therefore they're Commonwealth workplaces, therefore the Commonwealth Work, Health and Safety Act applies. So in each case, the Villawood one and the uh, current investigation is the Christmas Island one, Comcare inspectors will be investigating to see what, if any, breaches of the Work, Health and Safety Act uh, have allegedly been committed. It's very similar. It's uh, apparently very serious set of breaches and and Comcare will investigate to ascertain whether, in fact, there is evidence to the criminal standard of proof so that if if they do find evidence to the criminal standard, well, again, they would put a brief of evidence to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions and she would decide yes or no to lay charges. But that's, we're way ahead of ourselves. It's only just the start of an investigation and who knows what, if anything, um, might ensue. Well, just explain what Category 1 entails. Well, a Category 1 offence is the most serious offence uh, level of offending under the Health and Safety Act. Charges themselves, uh, potential charges, I should say, and I should add, 
Home Affairs, Border Force, IHMS, they are, of course, like any party being investigated, they are entitled to the presumption of innocence. We can't assume by any means that uh, evidence of criminal offending will be found or not. We, it's only an investigation at this stage. They're, they're entitled to the presumption of innocence. But under the Act, there are health and safety duties um, and uh, Comcare's looking to see whether any of those duties uh, have been breached. But if you breach a health and safety duty, that is, you potentially commit a criminal offence, and then the Act goes on to sort those potential offences, uh, or that potential offending, into three levels of seriousness. The Category 1 is by far the most serious. It says, in effect... Uh, you commit a Category 1 offence if you have a health and safety duty. Now, there's no doubt about that. Home Affairs, Border Force, IHMF, they have that health and safety duty. But then it goes on to say that having that duty, you allegedly, without reasonable excuse, engaged in conduct that exposed the person at the workplace to a risk of death or serious illness. And then thirdly, you, that is the workplace operator, you were reckless as to that risk. Now, that's a very steep, uh, you know, proving recklessness is, is pretty complex. That's category one. Category two says you had a health and safety duty, you failed to comply with it, and that failure exposed uh, a workplace person to a risk of death or serious injury or illness. Category three, the lowest level, is just you had a health and safety duty and you failed to comply with that duty. And the penalties vary accordingly. It's a $3 million maximum fine for a government department or a company under the most serious one, Category 1. It's a $1.5 million maximum fine under Category 2, the middle one, and the lowest level, Category 3, it's, it's a maximum fine for a company or a government department of half a million, 500000 So there's sort of a sliding scale. Max, would you agree that the... Wi- that the risk is worse on offshore islands? I'd better clarify. The more remote a place is and the lower the level of medical and hospital and other care because of that remoteness, well, the more remote the place is or less well served by health care, the more the risk, especially if something happens very quickly, if there's a, you know, uh, I, I'm not a doctor. I used to be a lawyer, but I'm, I'm retired. But if, if for example, something very, very serious happens without any warning, and the local healthcare can't deal with it, then you need a, an emergency medical airlift. Now that was a problem back when there were regional processing centres operating. Uh, on Manus Island, Papua New Guinea, and, and on the island of Nauru. And uh, one case, uh, a delay in the airlift, contributed to the death of a, a detainee, Hamid Karzai, back in 2014. His airlift was delayed by a day, and he had already contracted sepsis, blood poisoning, the, the one that Zanaka uh, apparently had towards the end. And by the time he arrived at Brisbane, at Brisbane Hospital, he was he was brain dead. So that's more remote and less well equipped the place is, the, the higher the risk for the detainees concerned. But I should just clarify the word 
offshore. I know Christmas Island has got 2,800 kilometres roughly west of Darwin. It's very remote. But technically speaking, it's not, quote, offshore, unquote. Of course, geographically it is, but it's not. It's it's a um, an external territory of Australia. So technically it's, if you like, part of Australia. But certainly the remoteness, yes, it's true. The, there's a very... A pretty basic local hospital. It, it was not equipped to deal with Annika's worsening condition. This also possibly contributed to two children on Nauru who were seriously ill. Yes, yes. People might recall that before the so-called Medivac amendment to the Migration Act that uh, Dr. Karen Phelps, uh, independent, managed to organise and get the numbers in Parliament after Turnbull resigned, that amendment made a huge difference because it just needed two treating doctors. It only lasted for less than a year because the coalition got the numbers again and and persuaded Jackie Lambie to vote with them to repeal the amendment. But it allowed two treating doctors, if they said someone's very sick on the rue or Manus and uh, can't be treated here, well, the minister, the minister concerned had five days to really make a decision, and uh, if the minister just sat on it, didn't make a decision, well, it was deemed to be said yes, fly them to Australia. So, but before that, that's what you're talking, asking about, Jan. Before that, the only way to get people flown to Australia for urgent, sometimes desperately needed medical care was to run a court case in the federal court of Australia, seeking what I call for short a fly them here order. And you mentioned children on Nauru who were, this was back in, in you know, 2014-15 where there, when there still were children on in detention on Nauru. Some of them were so sick that uh, the judge, the presiding judge said, if, if, if I give in to an adjournment sought by Mr, in effect, Mr Minister Dutton's barrister, that child is, is so sick, or in a couple of cases, they tried repeatedly to commit suicide the judge said, I'm not granting an adjournment. The child might be dead by the time of the adjournment date. Yes, that happened in a couple of cases. Uh, it's a terrible situation. Fortunately, every application from a fly them for a fly them here order was mainly adults, but some children. Every application was successful and, and they were brought to Australia for promptly to a med- for medical care and no no deaths occurred in, in those court case in relation to those court cases but things were getting close to it I can tell you. Just going back to the Tamil case were you at all surprised that that this case has moved so quickly for you is is it because of the previous one that the sort of message Uh, getting through to somebody? Well cut a long story short Comcare had the ability to lay or to prepare a brief of evidence leading to the laying of charges Again, breaches of serious breaches of the Work Health and Safety Act back when those regional processing centres were op- operating, but it chose not to. It did not enforce the law at all in relation to immigration detainees. It's a shocking blot on on care's history as a as a regulator. But out of the blue, in March this third of March this year. A Comcare investigation led to charges being laid in relation to the Villawood uh, case, as I've mentioned. And so when I wrote to Comcare seeking an urgent investigation in the case of Danica's apparent 
ill treatment or lack of medical care. I said, you know, I note that you've laid charges, you are enforcing the Act and I have confidence in your your work or your role these, these days as a regulator. And the reason I'm writing to seek your, you know, an investigation with a view to prosecution in this matter is because the apparent breach, putting a, a three-year-old child at risk of, potentially at risk of death, is so serious. And secondly, I say it's something you should look at urgently because who knows uh, how long we're going to be in Australia. I didn't quite put it like that, but uh, but I did refer to the letter of the, sorry, the media release of the 15th of June by Immigration Minister Hawke, who said that um, he acknowledged that the family had a couple of cases before courts or a tribunal uh, seeking protection, you know, asylum. Uh, he was saying that if people are found not to be owed protection, quote, they are expected to leave Australia, unquote. And so uh, to put too fine a point, I, I made it clear that uh, if Comcare is going to investigate, it, it damn well better be urgent because who knows what's going to happen in the next, you know, months or what, or over the next, I didn't put a time limit on it, but uh, they're here now, they're in Perth. Please get on to it ASAP. Are you aware, as being a former prosecutor, of how these cases are carried through? Well, yes, I was saying before, they, the inspectors investigate, uh, you know, they're trained and experienced. Now, of course, most of the cases that I was involved in, the, in prosecuting or assisting them, you know, running in court or instructing a barrister to run in court, they were nearly all what you might call industrial deaths, a very serious injury at a traditional uh, factory type situation. And quite often, the first thing the inspectors did was go to where the person, say, for example, got an arm caught in a machine or got uh, run over by a forklift or something. Uh, so the inspectors went straight to the incident site and talked to people who saw what happened and uh, took photographs and, and, and so on. But this is not a case where it's an industrial accident. It's a failure to provide health care. So my thinking would be that the inspectors would probably be seeking documents such as health health records as a first step at then later stage interviewing potential witnesses. But I'm just I'm just guessing the Comcare inspectors know what they're about. They know the most effective way to go about looking searching for evidence and uh, following through. So I'll leave it to Comcare's uh, inspectors. They did. Uh, a good enough job to satisfy the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions that the brief of evidence had material that could potentially prove, uh, you know, criminal cases, you have to prove every element of every offence you charge. You have to prove it to that beyond reasonable doubt level of proof. So you need damn good evidence. And But how the Comcare inspectors go about it, what sequence of investigation they follow is up to them and it varies from the situation of each case. And, of course, there are a number of bodies involved in this, aren't there? Yes. People probably don't realise, but the mega department of uh, home affairs, it covers all sorts of things. Um, uh, it's a very big ministry. But within the department of home affairs, there is a unit 
called Australian Border Force. People might think of it as a sort of independent police type force. It's not. It's just an organisational unit within Home Affairs. In fact, the, the Act, 2015 Australian Border Force Act, which created the, the unit, it says, there sh- words to this effect, there shall be within the department an Australian Border Force. But when you go to Border Force, the Border Force website, it says, and I'm quoting almost exactly here, we are responsible for the management dot 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 of immigration detention facilities, comma, including the health and welfare of detainees, unquote. So it's the Australian Border Force that um, is really the relevant unit within Home Affairs here. International Health and Medical Services Proprietary Limited, IHMS, I've mentioned IHMS, it's got a direct contract with the Commonwealth of Australia to provide health health services to immigration detainees. Yes, there are those two organisations are involved in this uh, scenario. And of course, their, their senior officers are also involved, but that's a a separate issue which I'll uh, I'll just uh, mention in passing. What about groups like Serco? Are they still involved? Yes, Serco, Serco Australia Proprietary Limited also has a contract with the Commonwealth of Australia to provide what's called, quote, garrison services, unquote, at all immigration detention facilities. But the main thing they do, Serco does, is provide guards who sort of supervise the uh, detainees. But here's, here's the rub. Australian Border Force oversees and to some extent controls the work of both IHMS and CERCO. And in fact, the court cases you were mentioning before, the, the five and here court cases, what was happening and what, what led refugee advocates and their lawyers to run these court cases was that that IHMS doctors on Manus and Nauru would be requesting uh, their superiors to, uh, you know, agree to flying people to Australia for desperately needed health care. But the party saying yes, very rarely yes, almost always no or not yet, was not a medical superior. It was Australian Border Force, a a non-medical body had the yes, no, or wait, had the, had the, um, I'll use this term loosely, had the God power in these situations of um, disagreeing, overriding medical ex- evidence. Now, so the question that uh, Comcare is presumably going to investigate is, was the long delay, the almost, you know, the dangerous delay in getting little Barnaker to Perth, was that a decision of IHMS doctors, or was that, as has been the case in the past, a decision by an Australian a senior a person for, in um, Australian Border Force? We just don't know, and that's, of course, one thing that uh, that the uh, Comcare investigators will presumably look at. Who decided to not provide care to Tharmika until she was really a, a in a very, very dangerous state of ill health. Okay, Maxwell, the waiting game goes on now. The time is short. Yes, so fingers crossed that the investigation proceeds uh, expeditiously. You can't rush a criminal investigation, of course. It's got to be very thorough. 
but uh, at least an investigation is happening and uh, Comcare has the track record of um, finding evidence to the criminal standard in uh, the Villawood case. Of course, who knows, the evidence may or may not be there and as I say, there's a presumption of innocence so we, we can't jump to any conclusions but at least an investigation, uh, a criminal investigation is happening. Well, congratulations for getting it to this stage. Thank you, uh, Jan, and all the best to your listeners. And we will be hearing more from retired solicitor Max Costello as this case proceeds. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more, July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova. A 3CR supporter. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6pm Tuesdays. In June, Moreland City Councillor Sue Bolton moved a straightforward motion of solidarity with Palestine, which was defeated on the casting vote of the Labor Mayor. I asked Sue if she was aware of other Melbourne or even other city local councillors expressing solidarity with peoples overseas subjected to occupation and violence by the occupying forces? Not very often, but uh, certainly Labor and some of the independents' reaction is any time you do move something that, um, you know, these are not the business of, of council. But, I mean, there is a history of these sorts of motions in, in the past, like... Um, Brunswick Council had banners on it. I'd say Brunswick, the old Brunswick Council is probably more radical than the current Moreland Council. The old Brunswick Council had banners opposing the invasion of Iraq in the first Gulf War in the early 90s. So, you know, like, and then of course there would have been motions around East Timor during the bloodbath there. So, like, at certain times, councils do these sorts of to pass these sorts of motions. What was the wording of your motion? So my motion was very simple. Uh, like I didn't like try and put the full, you know, so what social science would really like to see. So it was really firstly noting, so um, the, wor the wording of the motions in the, at the bottom of the Green Left article, so it says, the motion says, that Council 1 notes with deep concern the violence in Israel and Palestine where around 250 Palestinians and some 13 Israelis were killed in recent weeks. 
with Palestinians bearing the brunt of the attacks by the Israeli army in Gaza to express a solidarity with Moorland-based Palestinians whose community in Palestine is facing displacement by recent bombings. We note that this is not a conflict between equals, but the extension of an occupation that makes it impossible for Palestinians and Israelis to live in peace and security. Three notes that Moreland is home to and welcomes people from diverse backgrounds. We value our residents from the Middle East and to those impacted by this conflict. We offer our solidarity for rights of the Prime Minister calling on him to a, end all Australian government military ties with the Israeli government and cease pursuing a free trade agreement with Israel, and B, condemn the expansion of illegal Israeli settlements in Palestinian land, and five, condemns acts of racism towards Jewish or Palestinian people in our community. So it wasn't like a super radical motion, but it sort of it included the core issues of an acknowledgement that it's a one-sided conflict that's a result of the occupation. Um, like that, those are the sorts of things that the Zionists refused to acknowledge. It wasn't like super radical, but it was sort of a solidarity with the Palestinians, a recognition of the occupation and calling on the government to end military ties and stop pursuing a free trade agreement with Israel. Did all the councillors vote? Yeah, all the councillors voted. Actually, it was defeated on the casting vote of the mayor. So I have a feeling there was one councillor who wasn't there. And I think that might have been Malad El-Halabi might not have been there, who's the councillor who's under a cloud over the vote rigging in the Moreland Council election. Did many people speak to the motion? Mainly Green, Greens and Labor and myself spoke to the motion. So this motion was in advance because the last time Israel was bombing Gaza and I tried to move a similar motion, I couldn't get a seconder, not from the Greens, not from anyone, and so it just lapsed. Whereas this one, one of more progressive Greens councillors seconded it and he won the Greens to all voting for it. So in in that respect, it was a step forward. Do you have much contact with Palestinians in the city of Moreland? Yeah, I've got contact with some Palestinians. And it's not just the issue of the conflict, the dispossession of the Palestinian people, that's bad enough, but it's you also talked about Australia's ties to Israeli weapons corporations and that's coming out more and more now isn't it yeah that's right yeah how is how extensive is your knowledge well I've got a basic knowledge based on you know my research but uh, yeah I don't like have extensive extensive knowledge but I've got a certain amount of knowledge on the base of my my research and I believe the group that organised the protests outside the arms fair in Brisbane, which I've forgotten what the name of the group was. Not sure if Jacob Greck was involved in it. Actually, someone who is a bit of an expert or an expert in military and weapons manufacturers, etc., 
is Jacob Grech. Like he is actually very knowledgeable. He's been following these issues for a long time, as long as I've known him. Um, I met him first at the, I mean, I was living in Canberra then, but in the late 80s or early early 90s, I think it was, when there was a big arms exhibition in Canberra and there was a massive, like quite a large national protest um, to try and close down the arms exhibition. He sort of has been following these issues for a long time. Um, and there's certainly, there's also a bit of a group of anarchist Christian peace pacifists. And I was speaking with Sue Bolton, continuing her great work at the Moreland City Council as a councillor. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. How significant has Colombia been in destabilising Venezuela? Yeah, so, I mean, Colombia is the main Latin American country that has, that has aided the US in its attempts to overthrow the Venezuelan government. Now, now this has begun particularly with Ivan Duque's government, the far-right Centro Democratico government, uh, and, of course, before that, Alvaro Uribe. Um, who was the, you know, the architect of, of the increasing violence and militarization in Colombia itself. Colombia has, has long accused Chavez and Maduro of having links to the FARC guerrillas. There's no evidence to suggest that that's the case. Which, uh, but, but this myth continues getting perpetuated. We've had a number of different attempts at destabilizing Venezuela coming out of Colombia. Uh, we know that Colombia was involved in transporting the US mercenaries into Venezuela uh, for Operation Gideon, which was there uh, in last year when they attempted to overthrow Maduro, um, but they were caught by Venezuelan fishermen of all people, and the mercenaries were brought down by these simple fishermen who were devoted to defending their country and the Bolivarian revolution. But Colombia facilitated the, the transit uh, through Colombian waters and into Venezuela. The, the Colombians have also weaponized the migration issue. So a lot of migrants uh, that are heading out of Venezuela due to the, the economic hardships and the crisis there 
end up residing in Colombia. And now the Colombian does, government does one of two things with these people. Either it has granted a, a good number of them citizenship or temporary citizenship, uh, a sort of like, you know, migratory visa, I suppose, to try and paint the image of Colombia being the saviour of all these people that are fleeing, you know, the quote-unquote terrible socialist dictatorship in Venezuela. And, and you know, this is really just a propaganda piece for Colombia. But the, but the other more interesting thing is that a number of Venezuelans in Colombia have decided to return to Venezuela because they find that upon getting to, to Colombia, they're not able to get any jobs. They're derided, ridiculed. Um, they're the victims of hate speech, xenophobia from the Colombians. And there is no sort of social security net that they're used to in Venezuela. So, you know, as bad as things have, have been in Venezuela as a result of the crisis and the US intervention, there was always a social security net to give people enough food, enough medicine, and of course, you know, free education and healthcare and things like that and free housing. In Colombia, none of that exists. So a lot of these Venezuelans end up deciding they want to return home. Now, what Colombia does is it often refuses them the right to return to their own country. And it does have that power. As I said, it's a very militarised country, particularly along the borders. There's a number of laws that do give the, the security forces, you know, inordinate amounts of power in determining particularly what they can do with these sort of undocumented migrants that don't have any power or any roots in Colombia. Um, and they keep them there because, of course, that would, that would sort of break the narrative that's been established of, of Colombia being this, this saviour because, you know, the reality is that there's, there's not a majority, but there's still a, 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 not, a not insignificant number of Venezuelans that decide they just can't live, they can't survive in Colombia. Even if it was bad in Venezuela, they actually can't survive in Colombia. And, you know, beyond, beyond the migration issue, there is, of course, the political aspect. Colombia is a leading member of the Lima Group, which is the coalition of right-wing Latin American states, as well as the US and Canada, that have refused to recognise Nicolas Maduro as the legitimate government, as the legitimate president of Venezuela, I should say. Uh, and they've been the most vocal in that regard, in supporting Juan Guaidó. A number of, you know, Juan Guaidó's self-declared cabinet also make regular trips to Colombia. They are in league with the narcos, with the Colombian narco-traffickers and the narco-bourgeoisie. That is where they get a lot of their money from. That's where America gets a lot of its money from to fund Juan Guaidó. A number of investigations have been done on this, for example, um, on The Grey Zone, which is an excellent investigative journalism website. And, and then, of course, there's the very real military destabilisation that Colombia has waged against Venezuela. Now, this is a more recent thing. So this, this isn't just with US soldiers. This is with Colombian soldiers getting into skirmishes with Venezuelan um, soldiers on the other side of the border. There was one instance where it was Colombian and Colombian soldiers themselves and Venezuelan soldiers that got into a skirmish that was diffused. But more often than not, it's these right-wing paramilitary groups that cross the border from Colombia. They're financed by the Colombian government. And they, they are essentially tasked with either causing skirmishes, causing, you know, sort of like flare-outs, flare points of tension that can then be exploited by the US and Colombia, or they, they commit terrorist acts on Venezuelan infrastructure. For example, right-wing Colombian groups have attacked oil refineries, they've attacked gold mines, um, and they've even attacked towns more recently in the southern sort of Amazonian border with Colombia. Uh, they, they've ended up attacking people in Venezuela, and that's led to a few skirmishes. So it's, you know, apart from the US, Colombia is, is the main source of destabilisation against Venezuela. Moving to 2021, April, what was going on? 
to the sort of, I guess, the casual watcher of Latin American news, it might have seemed surprising that that so many millions of people, of Colombians from all walks of life, would uh, mass in the streets against the Colombian government, uh, precisely because of the image that's been established of this, you know, this sometimes problematic government that's, that's doing its best to address the issues in Colombia and, you know, speaking out against human rights abuses in Venezuela. That's the image that the mainstream media creates. What this 2021 uprising was, was essentially a manifestation of all the problems of neoliberalism that have accumulated in Colombia over the past 30 years. So Colombia is easily one of the most neoliberal Latin American countries. You know, most things are privatised. There, there is essentially no wage control. Workers' conditions are virtually non-existent. The public service is corrupt, inept. Um, and, and, you know, often people just don't even get basic services in some parts of the country. Just, you know, this is a cumulative sort of, like, injustice to the Colombian people that has prompted this, this sudden, you know, uprising, this spark, this eruption. And, and, you know, it's easy to see why. I mean, as of 2021, 42% of Colombians lived in poverty. Um, that's an increase of almost 8% from last year. So, so even, even from what happened in coronavirus, inequality has gotten even worse this year. Uh, and 15% of, of Colombians live in extreme poverty, which is absolutely shameful. It's the second most unequal country in Latin America, behind only Honduras, and it is the seventh most unequal country on Earth. Um, so that really just gives you an indication of how grave the situation is in Colombia. Now, the April 28th uprising, which lasted for, you know, for, for several months, and I, I believe there's a bit of a lull now, but they, they had planned for it was ostensibly, it was about a regressive tax reform that the Duque government was going to implement that was essentially going to um, hike prices on essential services, so gas, electricity and water. And not only was this going to make, make it unfeasible um, or unpayable for the majority of poor Colombians, even the middle class was going to feel, um, feel the pain from that. So there was that, that initial tax reform. There was a controversial health reform bill that was essentially going to grant, or grant power or control of most services over to private contractors, which are notoriously corrupt and notoriously inconsiderate of people's needs in Colombia. And then there was also the purchase of billions of dollars worth of Lockheed jets, so uh, US military jets, this enraged people, particularly because ostensibly Duque was increasing the taxes on everyday people, on their services, so that it could pay back not only the debt accrued during the coronavirus pandemic, but the debt accrued from purchasing so much military hardware from America. Underneath all of this, there was the simmering anger, resentment over the, the failed peace process, because a lot of everyday Colombians who weren't involved in either side of politics had been affected really heavily by the, the civil war in Colombia, and they had hoped that the peace accord in 2016 would actually resolve a lot of these problems. But, of course, it, um, it, it didn't, you know. Um, the Colombian government just exploited it and abused it and perverted it. Um, so, so a lot of people were angry. You know, it's really interesting to note the diversity of, of the protesters. So it's millions of people across the country. Um, we've mostly seen the images from Bogota, the capital, and Cali, which is where the violence from the Colombian state has been the most, the most confronting, I suppose. But it's across, you know, it's, it's across Colombia. You know, there's protests in small towns. There's protests in regional capitals. It's, it has got to, it has spread to every single part of Colombia. But the groups you have who are, who are forming 
this block against the Duque government and actually calling for his resignation now. Um, you know, it includes Afro-Colombian groups, indigenous organisations, the unions, the trade unions, student organisations from the universities that have to deal with a privatised education system, LGBTQ plus organisations as well. So, it's, you know, a whole range of people, even small business owners who have been really, really hard hit by the, um, the instability and the violence. And, of course, the vast majority are what we call, uh, or what are called in Colombia, ninis, which comes, which is an abbreviation of the phrase, ni estudian, ni trabajan, which is they don't study and they don't work. So they're called ninis. So this is the vast, you know, lump and pro young Colombians who have no job prospects, who have no education prospects. There's a real sense of hopelessness among this group. It's mostly people 18 to 30 years old. Uh, over three quarters of them are, are women. Who, who just have no job prospects or, as I said, um, you know, opportunities for, for higher education at all, and, and they're just fed up with the neoliberal system. So what you're saying is there's a, a lull in the storm at the moment? Yes. The National Strike Committee, or sometimes just called the National Strike, which was the amalgamation of all these groups, uh, had attempted to negotiate with the UK government on numerous occasions. The government took a hard line, as was expected, you know, refused to guarantee safety or safe passage for the representatives of the strike. It, it refused to punish the police and the military forces that had committed human rights violations during the protests. But on the other hand, the National Strike Committee was also unwilling to budge on their core demands on guaranteeing the essential rights for Colombian people, social rights. And they agreed to a temporary stoppage, mostly because a lot of the, the people, you know, in the strike movement also do have to return to what they do in their everyday life. It can't go on forever. So they've, they've announced a temporary lull or a, temp a temporary stoppage, not in every part of the country. It's still going in some parts, but in the major cities, at least, it's largely stopped for now. But they have announced that they're going to resume it if the government doesn't respond to their demands. I'm not sure what the time frame is. I, I don't anticipate they're going to wait long, probably maybe a month or two. But that's the situation at the moment. So something that has, has been reasonably well reported, actually, are the instances of, of police and military brutality committed by the Columbia, by Colombian forces against protesters. And these were largely peaceful protesters until the Colombian state responded with violence. Currently, there have been, um, there have been at least 45 deaths, but Human Rights Watch has actually indicated there were 70 credible reports of deaths. Again, as in the case of um, the, the deaths of the guerrillas and, the, and people who were involved in the peace process, it's probably a lot higher. We just don't know. There have been 1,600 arbitrary arrests, about 30 instances of sexual abuse against protesters from the Colombian police. These are human rights violations on a massive scale, far greater than, than any other country, I would say, in Latin America, which, which is really shocking, far greater than most countries in the world, actually, truth be told. And, and the really scary thing is that there have also been close to 400 forced disappearances. So we, we still don't know where these 400 people or these 380 people are. We don't know whether they're alive, dead, whether they've been tortured. We know that the Colombian military and the Colombian police and the right-wing paramilitary groups have been torturing people. In Bogotá, the municipal police station was converted into a torture centre and, and people were, were seen being carried out of vans and taken in there and just not coming out. So we still don't even know what's happened in, in Bogotá, the full extent. But the violence has been worse in Cali, on the Pacific coast of Colombia, 
where the police have not only established their own torture centres, there's numerous ones that have been documented by Human Rights Watch, but the wealthy residents of Cali, typically from the neighbourhood of Ciudad Jardín, which is the wealthiest neighbourhood in the city, have actually taken it upon themselves to attack the protesters. You know, so this is a really good manifestation of a class tension, the class war. It is a class war that has, that has erupted in Colombia. So, you know, you have also had these far-right wealthy individuals and groups taking vigilante justice, I suppose, undertaking vigilante operations against the progressive protesters. And they, they've been implicated in killing and torturing. So, so even, you know, you even have these right-wing people that are supporting the government who are just going out into the street and murdering people. It's absolutely horrible what is being done. And this can also be linked, this goes back just a bit before Duque and Santos to Alvaro Uribe, who was the original architect of a lot of this militarization and the violence. And he's very much the, the patron of, of the current president, Duque. Duque is sort of his protege. And Uribe and his ideology, or what is called Uribismo, does advocate, you know, the outright like murder of, of these protesters and of these progressive movements, of the members of these progressive movements. As I said, it was under his watch between 2002 and 2008 that 6,000 civilians were murdered for no reason. And he also advocates what is a Nazi theory, which is called molecular dissipated protest. It's a very strange name, a scientific name, but essentially what it is, is the idea that any form of protest particularly progressive protest, is essentially an act of war against the state and that the state is able to respond as if it were at war. And that is actually the thinking that has informed a lot of the responses to, to these 2021 protests is that it is a war and the Colombian military has responded by killing people, torturing people. Even the rules of war have been thrown out the window here. So, so it's important to note to note how significant you know this man and, and the political party he's created is, but we've had recent polls and it indicates that Ivan Duque has a, a disapproval rating of 76% and Uribe has a disapproval rating of 73%. So the vast majority of Colombians are dissatisfied with the status quo. The country is going to general elections next year. Duque is ineligible to run, so it will be someone else from the Centro Democrático, from the same party. But I, I don't anticipate them winning in a free and fair election. Um, there is a centre-left individual, Gustavo Petro, who, who almost beat Duque at the last election. He's indicated he's going to run. His candidacy has been confirmed. Uh, he actually hasn't been very visible with these protests, which does worry me. I don't think he's perhaps as radical as some people once thought. Perhaps he's just a, mild, a more mild reformist, which will still be the best thing Colombia's ever had, which is quite sad. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward next year with the elections. Just finally, Sasha, we need to acknowledge the courageous people who are out on the street defending the people. Absolutely. And, you know, whether that, whether that be, as I said, in Colombia, on the ground with all of these protesters, you know, defending their rights, asserting their rights again because they've been taken away, um, and, and whether it's everyone else across the world who has joined protests in support of the Colombian movement, it is so important to speak up about this issue because it's, you know, it's really significant for Colombian people. It's significant for Latin America. It breaks the narrative that's been established. You know, Colombia is not some sort of example that should be followed in Latin America. The U.S. would like us to think that that's the case, but it just isn't. And, you know, of course, it's, it's important as a model for, for any sort of progressive movement, any sort of working movement, because this is a very strong and a very committed and a very 
courageous workers' movement. It is it is fundamentally a workers' movement. It's drawn together all sorts of people, but they're all you know they're all working class people or even underclass people who have recognised that the neo system has totally failed their country. I salute all of them for taking up um, this protest, for going out and and expressing their discontent. Thank you once again. Thank you. And that was the second part of my interview with Sasha Gillies Lakakis about the recent history of Colombia in South America. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au We have seen record numbers of protests in Latin America recently, explicitly calling for an appropriate response to the pandemic, alongside the protection of healthcare workers and social and economic welfare for the population. Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia and Chile have all grown increasingly feeble in their justifications for both a lack of action against coronavirus as well as their increasingly authoritarian behaviour. Suffice to say, the Latin American right is being undone by its contempt for public healthcare. Its contempt for an essential human right. And with their traditional backer, the USA, embroiled in its own pandemic nightmare, the kleptocrats, religious zealots and maniacs leading Latin America's right wing are now on their own, it seems. And the region's people, from all available evidence, are perfectly aware of this fact. And their actions against this public health and political emergency are becoming all the more radical. After all, it is a matter of life and death, as it has always been in Latin America. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. To hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the radioactive show on 3CR 10 a.m. Saturdays. Following on from the successful home run for Julian Tour. In Eastern Australia, John and Gabriel Assange, Julian Assange's brother and father, 
tour the US in a nationwide tour to advocate for the release of Julian and for the Biden administration to drop its extradition effort and to highlight the broader implications that his persecution has for global press freedom. The tour culminated in a press conference at the National Press Club in New York on the 30th of June. On the platform with John and Gabrielle was Dr Cornell West, one of America's leading public intellects, philosopher, political activist and social critic. What follows is Dr West's contribution to the event at the National Press Club. It is a blessing, honour and privilege to sit here with my dear brother Gabriel and brother John, who are biologically and lovingly connected to my very dear brother Julian. I have a deep love and respect for him. I had dialogue with him when he was there in the embassy of Ecuador back eight years ago. I understand these plight and predicament of Brother Julian Assange as part of the legacy of all the great journalists who tried to raise their courageous voices and vision in the face of forms of terrorism. Ida B. Wells Barnett, one of the great journalists, black woman dealing with American terrorism at home, her works on lynching. Seymour Hirsch, I.F. Stone, again Jeremy Scahill, trying to tell the truth about American lies and crimes. That is a tradition that my dear brother Julian Assange is a part of. And one of the reasons why I would not miss this moment of not just being in solidarity with him and brother John and Julian, but also raising my voice is to accent the degree to which the vision, courage, the willingness to serve and sacrifice in the name of being a truth seeker and a justice witnesser. That's what Brother Julian is. And one of the reasons why the various administrations, be it Obama, be it Trump, be it Biden, have yet to fully come to terms with who he is and what his witness is all about is an attempt to try to hide and conceal the American imperial crimes based on the lies told. And we know that every nation, every government, every empire tells lies to conceal its crimes. And therefore, we have to be in genuine solidarity based on a moral consistency. And myself, as a revolutionary Christian, part of the legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr., It's a spiritual constancy to accent those who have been victimized by American terrorism and crimes through drones and a variety of other mechanisms. And so anytime I get a chance to to say a word for my brother Julian on television, radio, with the father or the son or the journalist, I come running. And so I was blessed to drive down from New York. We're driving right back to New York. My dear wife, to be on a heat and I driving back with smiles on our faces to be a part of this. And I do want to point out Brother Randy, Brother Randy Credico, who is unique in the culture, the legacy of the Richard Pryors and the George Carlins, who as activists, and we've been in jail together on many occasions with a smile singing together, 
concerned with the kinds of things that Brother Julian is concerned about. And what is that? The ability of those friends for known called the wretched of the earth to live lives of dignity and decency. And that truth ought to resonate no matter how many of the mainstream press show up, no matter how many politicians show up, because truth crushed the earth will rise again. And the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. Not just Brother Julian's suffering, but the suffering of those who have been killed, murdered, brutalized by American terrorism here, be it in Ferguson or abroad, be it as victims of U.S. drones. And that's what we're talking about. That's why this is a life and death issue. This is, that is why it's an issue of press freedom. And in the end, it is an issue of trying to preserve the conditions for the possibility of democracies here and abroad. That's what's at stake here. And it's never num a matter of numbers and quantity. Well, I tell you, I was blessed to be at the trial of Sister Chelsea with Chris Hedges and others, and I would affirm what you said in terms of the unbelievable uh, courage of Sister Chelsea. But let me say this about journalism, that we're living in a moment of such massive spiritual decay and moral decrepitude. By spiritual decay, I mean indifference toward the suffering of weak and vulnerable people. And by moral decrepitude, I mean the relative eclipse of integrity and honesty and decency. So when it comes to journalism, there is a dearth of quality journalism in the American empire. And there's a near death of genuine journalism. And what that means then is that you've got levels of careerism, opportunism, the cronyism between the owners of newspapers with the powers that be so that truth-seeking and justice-bearing is an afterthought. And journalism is reduced to superficial PR relations and strategies and tactics that have little to do with the truth. Because the condition of truth is to allow the suffering to speak of everybody, no matter what color, gender, sexual orientation, or nation. So when we hear the U.S. government bring critiques to bear on journalists in China, China's authoritarian. Journalists in Iraq, Iraq authoritarian. Haiti, Haiti authoritarian and then come back to the states and can't say a mumbling word of support for the release of my dear brother Julian. And that's true for Chelsea. That's true for a whole host of whistleblowers. Then the hypocrisy and the inconsistency and the inconstancy comes to the surface. And that's why the Amy Goodmans, the Intercepts, the Black Power Media, the Black Agenda Report, WBAI, Brother Randy Credit Co., and the others make a difference. And this is no small talk. 
Because in the end, it becomes the very grounds upon which you lose any sense of your democracy, any sense of press freedom, any sense of individual liberty. And I come from a black folk in this belly of the American beast whose history bears witness to that loss of liberties and democracies while it is celebrating itself with forms of national idolatry as the misery continued day in and day out. And that's why Brother Julie and I talked about the legacy of Martin Luther King. We talked about the legacy of Ella Baker. We talked about the legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer. And here he all the way down from Australia could open his heart and open his mind and say, lo and behold, Brother West, given whatever differences we have, we are committed to press freedom and democratic flourishing. And I said to him, my dear vanilla brother from Australia, I am in solidarity with you because I'm committed to press freedom, individual liberty, democratic flourishing, and keeping tracks of the victims of the war crimes of the largest empire in the history of the species called the American Empire. And that was Dr. Cornell West, one of America's leading public intellects, speaking at the National Press Club meeting in New York, supporting Julian Assange. Two weeks later, on the 13th of July, he cited anti-Palestinian prejudice in resignation letter at Harvard University. I'll read the report of his resignation. In his blistering resignation letter to Harvard University, Dr Cornell West, one of America's leading public intellects, cited the administration's anti-Palestinian prejudice as one of the main reasons for departing after four years of teaching. West is expected to return to Union Theological Seminary, where he first taught 44 years ago. West shared a copy of his letter on Twitter yesterday explaining the reasons for his resignation. The 67-year-old philosopher, political activist and social critic has been involved in a drawn-out public dispute with Harvard Divinity School over his tenure since earlier this year. Considered an intellectual giant by many, West's fallout triggered speculation over why such a prominent figure should be denied tenure. It was thought that his vocal support for the Palestinians and his harsh criticism of Israel played a major role in blocking his path to tenure. Over the past few years, pro-Israeli groups have run a highly successful campaign across the American states and campuses to suppress criticism of Israel, using the highly dubious International Holocaust Alliance definition of anti-Semitism which conflates criticism of the occupying state with racism toward Jews. West himself has hinted that he is a victim of such a campaign, thought by many to be an assault on the First Amendment of the American Constitution, which guarantees the right to freedom of speech. Is Harvard a place for a free black man like myself, whose Christian faith and witness put equal value on Palestinian and Jewish babies. Like all babies, 
and rejects all occupations as immoral, West asked on Twitter when the dispute first came to light. West also claimed that Harvard's decision was political and had nothing to do with his ability as a professor. After being tenured at Yale, Harvard, Princeton and Union Theological Seminary, the recent Harvard denial of a tenure process strikes me as a political decision I reject, added West. Nothing stands in the way of my profound love for and solidarity with oppressed people wherever they are. In an interview with Boycott Times, he said that there are certain taboo issues at Harvard. One of them is the Palestinian cause, wrestling with a serious moral, spiritual, political critique of the Israeli occupation, West said. Harvard contests these allegations. Sharing a copy of his letter to over a million followers on Twitter, West said, I try to tell the unvarnished truth about the decadence in our market-driven university. Let us bear witness against this spiritual rot. West mentioned a cowardly deference to the anti-Palestinian prejudice of the Harvard administration, along with the university's indifference to his mother's death, amongst the reason for his resignation. He accused Harvard of suffering from intellectual and spiritual bankruptcy. And that was Dr Cornell West. Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a National People's Inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. We heard from environmental consultant and human rights activist Lee Tan last week about the dire situation regarding democracy and COVID in Malaysia at a time where, although there is almost daily reports from Indonesia, little is heard about Malaysia. I rang Lee once again at the weekend as the situation is continuing to deteriorate in Malaysia. It is, actually. Yesterday, I mean, they had over 13,000 cases of infection. Um, That's been, I think, the highest since COVID was declared a pandemic in Malaysia. And that's despite the emergency ordinance being imposed from January uh, of this year. How are people being treated? You know, how people are being treated is something unequal. If you're a minister, if you're a politician, or if you're a person well-connected 
through the government, you seem to be able to flounder the movement control order. But if you're, you know, poor ordinary people, desperately trying to find a means to keep the family alive and and uh, fed, you know, and and you could get a very hefty fine. Uh, and there've been police going to certain places, checking on people to make sure they adhere to the so-called MCO, the lockdown uh, requirement, and they're not consistent uh, or uniform. You know, it depends on what race you are, what racial background you are, and also, you know, who or where it is and, and who, whether you're connected or not politically. So, you know, it's been really problematic and very unfair for many people especially if they're not well-connected to the political, you know, to the uh, ruling party, uh, and if they are not of particular racial uh, background. With so many new cases, how many people are dying, or don't they, or don't they publish that figure? Well, they, they have been publishing, but not widely publicised in that sense. But more worrying is the, pe- the number of suicides. Apparently, in the last quarter, three months, there have been over 300 cases of known suicides because of this lockdown, because of COVID, and because of the hardship, economic hardship, and social isolation. And because of this, you know, huge number of um, suicides or alarming figures, some People in the community began to take action, although, you know, some had already done that before, but this time they're trying to make it more visible. And one of those actions has been the white flag campaign, you know, where when a, a, a woman in one of the states, in a northern state, suggested through social media for people to put up white flag to gain attention if they need help. And that campaign's actually taken off. And within, you know, 24 hours, it, got, it went viral and it became widely known, not only in Malaysia, but also around the world now. And what about a black flag? Yes. And then uh, following the white flag uh, campaign, you know, when people are putting out the white flag and getting support and all that, the ruling government or the, the yeah the politicians, some of them felt shameful and started to you know ask police to intervene and and are uh, suggesting that it shouldn't happen. It's kind of um, being seen as failure to the government and so on and so forth. And at the same time, the medical association has started a black flag campaign. The black flag campaign is to try and advocate for uh, more certainty for people at the front line, particularly the medical or the the care, you know, the medical um, doctors and um, yeah, and people in that health sector. The black flag campaign is more to get people to show support for their advocacy to give clearer tenure duration and also fairer pay for medical people, doctors, young doctors particularly, 
who basically risked their life, you know, in during the COVID pandemic to save people who are high, badly infected. And it's more a social media campaign where they ask citizens to use uh, to turn their profile into a black color. Again, you know, it got interpreted by the government as an anti-government activity. And some of the um, medical officers from the hospitals been warned uh, and investigated not to take part, which is really uh, disappointing in view of the situation in Malaysia right now. I'd imagine that health professionals are suffering as well as the general public. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there have been cases of death happening there, but they also been a case where a major vaccination centre was infected and the whole, like, there's been, like, quite a number of uh, healthcare profession nurses um, and doctors who, who were present um, who were all tested COVID positive, mainly because of the Delta variant, the same variant that's, you know, affecting uh, Australia right now, that's spreading very fast. Because of the... Um, limited capacity of the health services, particularly in, um, in the state of Selangor, where Kuala Lumpur is located, uh, where the population is highest and where the infection has been, you know, worse. They're really running out of capacity. Many of the medical officers are working in very risky, high-risk environment. Yeah, with very little breaks, poor protection for an, under a huge amount of pressure. Uh, and yet, you know, we had a situation where the cabinet has like over 40 ministers, uh, wise ministers and what have you, and, you know, getting paid and not really doing their job because parliament hasn't sat since the coup, uh, basically last year, I think. And so there's been very little coordination within the government. And, you know, ministers are still going overseas, you know, for pleasure or for whatever excuses they're giving while the people are suffering and the family going hungry. Yeah, and doctors are, you know, dying as well as working under huge amount of pressure. And COVID's going out of control still, despite the supposedly lockdown and despite the emergency. So as you can imagine, you know, there are a lot, many very angry, frustrated, and very worried people out there right now. And as you said, very hungry people as well. Absolutely. I think, you know, there have been some positive situation where, you know, when this white flag campaign became prominent, you see people from different racial groups supporting each other as Malaysians and not kind of um, reflecting the kind of racist politics that the government has been uh, peddling all these decades, basically. So that's kind of something positive, you know, showing the spirit of Malaysians. When they need, you know, they, they would unite, and regardless of the propaganda and the racial politics that's being played out in that country. So that's kind of something positive. And now apparently there is a red flag um, campaign where angry citizens are calling for the current government 
to resign, to reduce the number of cabinet ministers, so, so that more of the resources are made available to help the people who are in need. And then at the same time, they've still been, you know, kinds of politicking at the top level, you know, vying for the top post and uh, looking at maybe further coups to change the prime ministership. The prime minister himself is um, either in the hospital or out and about, still trying to protect his position. And meanwhile, Mahathir Mohammed, whom many people would know as a fairly authoritative political leader in Malaysia, has resurfaced, you know, wanting to lead the economic recovery kind of planning for Malaysia, which again is rather worrying. Are there lockdowns in certain parts of Malaysia? Oh, in fact, the whole country is almost in a kind of a lockdown. But it's again, you know, as I mentioned previously, it's not consistent. Industries are allowed to operate at 60 or 50% capacity, and certain shops are allowed to open. I mean, not your grocery shops. I think it depends on who you're connected to politically. Some hawkers uh, belonging to a particular race are also allowed to operate as usual. So there's been a lot of this kind of problem, and that's why the infection is spreading, because it's haphazard, um, it's politically driven rather than COVID kind of you know, management driven. It's not scientifically based. It's um, still driven through political agenda. And that's why it is so problematic in Malaysia. And that's why people are suffering even more than they, they should. Who has access to vaccinations? Again, you know, like in some places, uh, the people that are over 60 have by and large been encouraged to get vaccination. Yeah, in some states, like particularly like I know in Kwantan, most of my friends been vaccinated, but I'm not sure about other places. I I, I think only about ten percent of Malaysians have been vaccinated so far. Slightly better in Australia, but because of the raging COVID infection over there more people should be getting vaccination. Um, I'm not sure if that's happening. And if the major vaccination centre is closed because of raging infection there as well, it will deter many people from wanting to get vaccinated. And that's a problem. And if big populations in small areas make it difficult to have spaces between people, is that the case? Yeah, I, I think that problem is more applicable to the cities where housing is costly and poor people are living in very, you know, crowded and, you know, already, yeah, crowded and unhygienic um, environment in flats. As we know, you know, in the case of Melbourne, when you have an infection in an apartment, we lock down the whole apartment. In those places, it's not possible, although they did that before. Last year, with um, migrant workers, when they locked down the whole block of apartments with barbed wires in a very underhanded way without giving them uh, the necessary support. Um, but 
in this the, the current situation when the infections actually spread out into the community, they couldn't actually lock down the entire housing estate, um, high rise, or so and so forth, and then many of that in Malaysia. And um, yeah, those, those places are vulnerable, particularly both with COVID and also with um, hunger and starvation if they're not allowed to go out to work. And without any government support, I mean, over here, we still have job seeker, we still can apply for relief. But in Malaysia, that's kind of, you know, I'm not sure if that actually exists. Uh, and if it does, it's like if you're not connected to the ruling parties, I think it's always very difficult for people, particularly those who are already marginalized, to apply for it. That's all I have, Lee Tan. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I might just want to comment on uh, Linus and his Kalguri proposal. I, I think last time I might have commented a little, but I've just finished a submission reviewing the environmental impact assessment and you know a whole range of um, basically what they call environmental review documents submitted by Linus for the Kalgoorlie operation. And as I mentioned before, while we are glad that Linus will be pulling his cracking and leaching plant from Malaysia, which produce huge amount of radioactive waste, it still has Malaysia, the waste in Malaysia to tackle, and there's really nowhere safe in Malaysia for that waste. And what's Linus going to do with, about it? And the Malaysian government cannot be relied on to clean up the mess, to prevent it from, um, you know, creating risk and hazard for the community. But in Kalgoorlie, to our surprise, to an extent, it seems like the Western Australian EPA has been rather lenient towards Linus. The proposal from Linus is more or less as bad. It will have its cracking plant on one side of Kalgoorlie Boulder City, and then it has got its radioactive waste on the other side of the city, very close, about two to three kilometers from residential area. And it tried to disguise the radioactive waste as just a iron gypsum when it is actually when it actually contains uh, long-lived radioactive thorium and uranium. I mean, these are sources are ionizing radiation. And in most decent countries with good governance, they need to be managed properly, not just dumped in some area without proper containment to make sure that this radioactive material doesn't leach into the environment for like over 10,000, thousands and thousands, hundreds and thousands of years. But the proposal for Kalgoorlie is not at all meeting that standard. Government has exempted Linus from the EPBC Act when, in fact, it should be subject to it. Is that the final hurdle they have to get over, is it? According to um, Neil Pepper, who is an um, anti-uranium uh, activist, that there is another process for uh, you know, NGOs or members of the public to appeal against it. I'm not that familiar with that approval process, but 
hopefully that will be the case. Anyway, we put in our submission, and yeah, and and Gavin Mart from RMIT has also given his technical assessment. Uh, a few other people have put in their submission as well, from my understanding. We'll be keeping a watching break. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yep. Thanks. And that was Lee Tan speaking about the situation for the people in Malaysia with increasing concerns about the situation of COVID in that country. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. This is 3CR. Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, Witnesses J and K, Julian Assange, are just a few of the increasing number of courageous whistleblowers persecuted by their governments for telling the truth. And there are more. The latest is a 33-year-old former Air Force intelligence analyst who pleaded guilty to sharing classified documents about drone attacks with a reporter in March. Arrested in May, now imprisoned at the Alexandra Adult Detention Centre, he will be sentenced on the 27th of July and is expected to spend 10 years in prison. Yesterday I spoke with Cathy Kelly from the group End All Wars and asked her first what the exact charge against him was. Well, Daniel is charged under the Espionage Act with one charge of uh, taking classified information and uh, doing it without permission to do so. And uh, he did do that. Um, however, the tendency on the part of the government to approach to the, anybody who is a whistleblower is to stack up as many felony charges as they possibly can and to create as the venue for an eventual trial one of the most conservative districts in the United States. And this is what was done for Daniel Hale. The district where he was charged is the Eastern District of Alexandria, which is home to the Pentagon, the CIA, FBI offices. And then there were so many felony charges leveled against him that he would have faced 50 years in prison if a jury convicted him in this very conservative district. And so it kind of coerced him to do what many other whistleblowers have done in similar circumstances. He pled guilty to that one charge. So that means he doesn't get any kind of a trial. And at no point could he ever raise his motivation for why he did what he did. 
And so people have been flooding Judge Liam O'Grady with letters asking him to please be lenient with this young man, a former Air Force analyst who felt in conscience that he was seeing information that must be entrusted to the U.S. public because it was the military's own information about uh, the staggering number of times that they had faulty information and targeted with their drones non-combatants, innocent people. How long was he doing this job? Well, he worked as a an Air Force analyst for a three-year stint. But then when he was discharged, he worked for a security contracting company. And by that time, he was already very troubled in his conscience. And so it was while he was working for the security contracting company that he contacted a journalist. It turned out to be Jeremy Scahill working for The Intercept. And he told Jeremy that he had these materials. And the federal authorities figured out pretty quickly when Jeremy Scahill published what were called the drone papers that the source must be Daniel Hale. And so his house was uh, raided by uh, about uh, two dozen officers, armed officers, and they took all of his electronics and cell phone. And and so that happened, and then nothing happened for another five years. But under the Trump administration, the authorities uh, then did charge Daniel with all of these charges, and he was very frightened, very anxious what would happen. He's had a good team of lawyers. Uh, I think he's gotten, I mean, I know there's increasing support. There was a press conference in New York City yesterday that was well attended and included some people who are very highly respected. Martin Sheen, the actor, wrote a letter on his behalf. The writer, Chris Hedges, did the same. A very famous artist, Rob Shetterly, has painted his portrait and so, I, you know, there are actions happening, and there's a website, standwithdanielhale.org. And it's not too late to go there and even from Australia to uh, send him a letter. He's in the Alexandria Detention Center, and the address is at that website. Or maybe even get a letter off to the judge, because those can be sent by email to the lawyers, by the way. Right. What did the Intercept series reveal? Well, it revealed that during an operation in Afghanistan called Operation Haymaker, there was over a five-month span, a period during which 90% of the people who had been targeted turned out to be non-combatants. And that over the period of that entire time, there were out of 200 drone attacks, only 35 were actually people that were later proven to be the people they were trying to target. So so this means that, you know, these drones that are equipped with Hellfire missiles that fire now with the newest version, 100 pounds of molten lead, on like the roof of a car or the roof of a home, And then that's followed up by, if you can just kind of imagine a lawnmower, rotating blades that are 12 inches long, six steel blades, and designed to slice up a body. These are grotesque weapons. 
and they're being fired at women, children, family members, associates. And sometimes, you know, when these groups get information, they're fed information by people who are retaliating against the person they identify as a terrorist. And there's no way to corroborate it in these remote areas where the weapons are used. So this is happening not only in Afghanistan, but also with U.S. drone attacks in Yemen and in Somalia, in Syria. And so it's it's so crucial that U.S. people begin to understand what we are accountable for. These are war crimes. And uh, when it's top secret, classified, shrouded in... Uh, invisibility, really, because that's what the military canon does do, then someone like Daniel Hale, I think, should be thanked, not buried in a prison. And I'd imagine that there are other Daniel Hales around, too, who haven't yet had the courage to expose what they've seen. And isn't it likely, then, that a case like his will deter them because they will know if you do this, it's likely you'll be caught and it's likely you will face charges that will change your life forever. They've been very hard in the past on reality winners. She just finished a five-year sentence for whistleblowing. They are certainly harsh with Assange and with Snowden. Uh, they were very hard on a guy named John Kiriakou who served two and a half years in prison. And and he's the one who helped me understand what the venue choice has to do in ter- with in terms of being able to get a stiff sentence and uh, what he what he calls uh, charge stacking, stacking up the charge. Again, he called it venue shopping and charge stacking, and that was what was done with him in his case. Are you saying also the treatment that they get when they're in prison? Well, you know, he was out on bail, and then he was called in for a routine drug test. They, you know, have you urinate in a cup and test your urine, and he passed that. There wasn't any marijuana. There wasn't any alcohol. There wasn't any drug. But as soon as he went in for that test, they um, arrested him and put him in jail, and his lawyers weren't allowed at the hearing. And nobody understood, well, why did they pick him up? And there was a kind of an intimation that they were worried for his safety, like that maybe he would harm himself. So they put him in the same jail where Chelsea Manning was held, by the way, another person who was treated so harshly. And uh, that's where Chelsea Manning attempted to commit suicide. So if you're worried about somebody as a suicide risk, why would you put them in one of these places? And he, he was held under very, very strict conditions. He could only go outside once a week. I don't even know if he was allowed out that often. Now he's in general population and he's able to get mail and even um, some journalists have been able to call him. Uh, But of course, you can only send a letter that is on white paper with black or blue ink. If there's any deviation from that, your letter will be bounced right back to you. Um, But I hope he's getting loads of mail. He is. I know he is. And a week today, he's back in court. Uh, July 27th. So we'll certainly keep you apprised of what happens. 
and we're very much hoping hoping that Judge Liam O'Grady would give him time served or that President Biden would pardon him. There was a an, uh, an artistic action in which artists projected his image on a wall uh, in several different places in Washington, D.C. And it was interesting, the people involved in that asked passers-by, have you ever heard of this guy, Daniel Hale? And of course, no one ever heard of him. But also, no one had ever heard of U.S. involvement in drone warfare. So we need a Daniel Hale desperately in this country. Does Judge O'Grady have a history? Mm, That I really don't know. You know, I was wondering, um, does he know his Irish history? Would he at all be cognizant of uh, the Easter Rising and this barrister that I've often written about, uh, Brendan Nix, who got the Plowshares Act for this off scot-free in um, Ireland. And his question had been, uh, the question isn't, did these five activists have a lawful excuse to do what they did? The question is, what's our excuse not to do more? And, you know, Daniel Hale himself has said that when he was being trained, they were told, you know, these these bad guys, these Taliban, these terrorists, they're, they're cowards. They plant bombs on roadsides and then, you know, they run away. And Daniel Hale thought, well, what does that make of us? You know, we're 8,000 miles away and we push a red button. So I see Daniel Hale as a person of great conscience. And, of course, it doesn't matter, does it, that there's a different president in the in the White House? Is that how you see it? You know, uh, under President Obama, whistleblowers were charged and sentenced to some of these um, draconian types of sentences. Uh, It's happened under Trump. I I don't, I haven't seen President Biden distinguish himself in terms of challenging the military or security contractors or FBI, CIA practices. I think he, he sort of sees himself as being aligned with that lawless crowd. I don't know why. Finally, Kathy, can you give those that email address or a, a place for people? Oh, surely. If you go to the website standwithdanielhale.org, they'll give you his address, and then you kind of have to be a bit patient, but they'll bounce you to another connection, which is actually Code Pink's very helpful description of how to write a letter to the judge and then you email that letter to one of Daniel's lawyers and the the lawyer's email is given. But, you know, just even a short uh, letter from someone in Australia might really impress Judge Liam O'Grady. So I, we would be so, so grateful if people would consider doing that. I think it, it would make a difference. Thank you so much, Kathy. Oh, thank you as ever, Jen. Um, it's great to be... On your show, anytime you call, I feel really honoured, so thank you. Veteran peace and anti-war activist Kathy Kelly. The group now is End All Wars, and it would be absolutely great if some of the listeners could take up Kathy's offer there. The webpage is standwithdanielhale.org, and as she said, you follow the prompts and send a message to both Daniel and the judge. Stand with Daniel Hale.
3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.